Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. So I wanted to tell you that there's a new fee coming for a mortgage refi. And this is a fee that was instituted by the Trump administration to go into effect in September. The reason for this fee is there are worries that because of the recession we're in, that the number of people who are going to default on mortgages is going to rise. So the new fee that will average about $1,500 on the typical refinance is essentially building up a mad money fund to deal with the possibility of foreclosures on homes in the future. So this will apply to any new refinances, which means that if you're already in process, you'll likely get closed and avoid this fee. The more your home, uh, your refinance costs in terms of the amount of money of your mortgage, the more you'll pay in fee because it's basically a flat half a percent surcharge or junk fee on a refinance. So this is going to make comparison shopping for mortgages a little more um, time-consuming on your part. It means that there may be more situations where doing a no-closing-cost refi will work out as a better choice for you than doing a traditional mortgage refi with closing costs. If you're not familiar with no-closing-cost refis, it's not like the, the bank or credit union or mortgage broker is just gifting you the closing costs. What they're doing is you pay a higher interest rate than you would pay otherwise. Historically, that increased rate has been half a point to five-eighths of a point. In many, many, many circumstances, it is to your advantage to do a no-closing-cost refi. Uh, Big banks don't do them. Uh, Big banks are really a terrible choice for mortgages anyway. But you'll find that a lot of mortgage brokers can make no-closing-cost refis available to you and very often, uh, most credit unions offer a variety of no or low closing cost refinances. So when you're shopping, you want to see what makes the most sense for you. The advantage of a no closing cost refi is that you don't have to figure out a payback period on the refinance of your mortgage. If you're getting a lower rate than what you already have, you're saving money from day one and it saves you going forward. How long will face this half a point junk fee? I don't know, um, but it is going to be something going on for a while until it's clear that there is not a threat of a significant increase in the number of foreclosures going on. It's time for questions that you posted for me at clark.com ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternate. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Sammy in Texas. And Sammy says, my child has an FSA account, but we are concerned to bring her back to school. 
She's a four-year-old, so she would be attending pre-K. We have about 3000 left in the FSA account. If we delay her returning to class until spring of 2021, would we lose that FSA money? As of right now, it appears that you well might. Um, there's been a lot of talk about giving people a one-time opportunity to roll over flexible spending account money to a following year. But to this point, that has been just talk. And we're going to have to wait and see when Congress does reconvene if they address the dependent care allowance, the flexible spending account dependent care allowance, to see if that money can, as a one-time concession to the unusual circumstances of coronavirus, if that money will not be use it or lose it in 2020, but will actually be allowed to be rolled over. One unusual thing that was permitted earlier this year is the ability to discontinue contributions, which is not normal, and that has been a big help to families. But being able to kick the money forward to another year, not yet. Joel? Clark Tanya in North Carolina says, I'm wondering how you feel about the coin shortage. I normally pay cash at stores to avoid using my credit card, but I went to a big box store and was told I couldn't use paper cash. I would have said goodbye and walked away. However, I've got to feed my kids. I feel as if the government is forcing Americans to use credit cards to put us in more debt. I've heard so many stories as to why we have this shortage. One good one was that no one is purchasing anything. So, Where's everything going, if that's the case, and how should I feel about this shortage? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) People are purchasing things. They're just generally not using cash. They are using some form of plastic. But I have not heard of any significant number of retailers refusing to accept paper money. The big problem generally has been making change and not permitting you to pay for your items with paper money is surprising. Uh, You know, it's been true of some coffee shops and places that may be in higher crime areas where they're no longer accepting cash. But at a grocery store or something like that, not taking cash is odd. Um, As far as the coin shortage, we do have a severe coin shortage. And it's been my belief that if we just rounded to the nearest quarter or even the nearest paper dollar, that over time, everybody ends up even. It's just hard for people to accept that as a way to get your change back. Kim? Kevin in North Carolina says, I've been looking for term life insurance. I found Haven Life and I found that they offered a no medical exam option. But after filling out the application, they came back with, quote, take the medical exam for a potentially lower rate or bypass the medical exam, but pay a higher rate. I was really hoping not to have to do the medical exam. I have a couple of issues that are currently under control. So what considerations should I have in making this decision? All right. So this is a great question. And it's something that I have addressed, but maybe not very clearly. So when you use one of the health and uh, one of the life insurers that does is instant issue of policies, there's a small percent of applicants that will 
be required to do a medical exam. But what you brought up is a response I have not heard before. And that is that they're giving you the choice of avoiding the medical exam in return for accepting higher premiums for the life of the policy or undergoing the medical exam and getting a lower premium but potentially being rejected for a policy. That is <laughs> that is a new wrinkle that is new on me. Usually, most people sail right through with one of the insurers that does instant issue unless there's a pre-existing. In my case, I have zero chance with the pre-existings I have and my age of being able to go through one of the automated underwriting processes. So you could try another of the automated services and see if you sail through, or maybe you are someone who needs to go through traditional medical underwriting, or if you're really worried about that and they did approve you for a surcharge premium on the automated issue, maybe you go ahead and accept that so you know you have the policy and it's instant issued. And not there's if you hear in me a lot of hemming and hawing, it's there's not an easy answer as what your best course is once you have not sailed through the automated underwriting. Joel? Clark Jeff in Texas says, I finally persuaded my kids to set up a Fidelity cash management account. I want them to close their monster megabank accounts. However, since they are waitresses, they receive large amounts of cash. So if they close those Monster Megabank accounts, how can they get their cash into the Fidelity account? So when somebody has uh, cash as part of their picture and there's a lot of cash coming in and you need to deposit it, then using one of the brokerages that don't accept cash is a non-answer for you. So in reality... What I would recommend is a no-fee credit union account that you link to the Fidelity account. So they could deposit the cash at a local credit union without having to pay any monthly fees. And then as the money is available, they transfer it over electronically into the Fidelity account. Extra work, I know it sounds like a hassle. And if somebody has a better suggestion, Please send it in to us. Kim? Fair enough. All right. This one is from Mustafa in Illinois. And Mustafa says, just wondering if it's okay to record customer service calls the same way that they record us. So with every customer service call, they always tell us, hey, this call is going to be recorded. However, one time in the middle of a call, I told an agent that I was going to record the call and she declined. Also, I currently am sitting on a recording from a different customer service call that I'd like to use in a case I'm filing with the CFPB, but I'm not sure that I can. Please note, I found out Illinois is a single-party consent state. All right, so single-party consent means if you were talking with somebody who is in the state of Illinois, you were free to record without notifying them in a dual party situation both parties have to agree you don't know where you're talking to somebody so it's uh, you just have to assume that it's dual party required what i recommend is at the very beginning of the call just very quickly say you're on a recorded line and if they ask you now 
hi, this is Jim on a recorded line, and just say that, and then you have notified them. They probably aren't even hearing what you're saying as you spit that out. But if if they object, isn't it crazy that a company wants to record every conversation with you but says that you can't record them? My favorite alternative is that you do a chat with a company customer no service instead of a phone call. Then you have a perfect digital record of what actually took place. And many times you can accomplish more and also faster in a chat than you can in an actual phone call. As for the recording you're sitting on, well, go ahead and use that by quoting from it. But I don't think it's a good idea to state, hey, by the way, I have this recorded, unless that becomes an issue later where that would be key and central to your discussion. Lily is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Lily. Hi, Clark. I've heard in the past you discuss you discuss the possibility of banks taking away a home equity line of credit or HELOC during this time. And that concerns me because I'm an independent contractor and I kind of look at it as a safety net during this economy. Um, my question to you today is, should I be focusing more on paying off my HELOC balance or should I be contributing to my savings account or both? I'm paying more in interest with the HELOC and I'm sure. at a point where I have an emergency fund already saved up. Um, I also want to do some further renovations and use part of that HELOC. Uh, and if it helps, I also have a 401k, a pension, a Roth IRA, and a CD. Wow, you're not messing around with money at all, are you? <laughs> Good for you. All right, so how soon are you going to do the improvements to your home? I'm looking at doing improvements within the next month or two. Oh, then... Definitely do not pay down the home equity line, even if you could afford to, because the, the banks are really frightened, as you mentioned up front, mm-hmm. and you don't want to have your reward being for paying off your remaining line balance to have them say, hey, you're done, you're out of here. In fact, I would go ahead, if you need to, draw down the line enough money so that you have on hand what you need to do, the improvements you're going to do in the next month or two. So you already have it available, so they can't draw you down to your current balance and say, hey, we're done with you. You will have already drawn that money you need to complete the work. And I, I know there's okay. a, a cost to doing what I'm talking about. You're having to pay, what are you having to pay, like uh, 4.5% on the HELOC? 4.375. I was off an eighth of a point. How could you trust anything <laughs> I would say? So you're, you know, you're paying 4.375 for essentially an insurance policy that you have access okay. to the money you need to do the improvement versus in your savings, you're earning maybe 1%. So you're paying, uh, you know, a, a you know, three and a half point spread approximately to have access to the funds you need, I say that you draw it down for the anticipated cost of the improvements, pay a little more unnecessary interest, just so you know you're good for the job. Okay. Is there any kind of trigger as to what accounts they would take the, they would take the HELOC back from or to, you know, not allow you to have it anymore? There's been you know no, no discernible pattern, and it's been 
really um, haphazard how it's been happening. It's been happening to people with really solid credit and good jobs. It's been happening to people who have not drawn on their HELOC for a while. There's no thing I can say, well, do this, this, and this, and they're not going to mess with your HELOC. I haven't been able to figure anything out like that. Seems to be all internal in a bank how they've been making the decision whether or not to shut off people's HELOCs. So I would draw it down, and you'd be good to go for that job. Just hope there are no-cost overruns. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you have. So right in front of me, I have uh, actually three Chromebooks that I use when I'm bringing you the show. And on the Chromebook, I can go to the to the bar and put in the address of any site I want to go to, do a search to find that site, and I go to it. It's no cost to me to do that. And the entire universe of websites available to me. On the other hand, if I have an iPhone or an Android and I want to go to a music source or a gaming site or whatever, I do it with an app. And the apps are controlled, the availability and access to apps are controlled by the duopoly, the shared monopoly of Apple with its App Store and Google with its Play Store. And that is leading to antitrust fights all over the world that specifically and directly impact your wallet and your access to information or entertainment you'd like to have. There are knockdown, dragout fights going on right now, specifically with Apple and Google, with companies fighting them, but especially Apple, over restricting access to their app store when a company does not want to give Apple roughly a third of the action. So let's say the fight going on right now with Spotify and Apple and now with Fortnite. You know, Fortnite is an intensely popular video game. And Apple is able to set whatever punishment they want to your wallet by saying to Fortnite's developer that they got to give Apple a third of the action, actually 30% of the action, anytime you buy any app from them. But there's a difference. And the reason Apple is more in play in terms of lawsuits happening is that Google still allows someone on an Android phone to use an app with bypassing paying the commission that Apple that uh, Apple wants and Google wants. Where Apple, if you don't want to pay the commission, you're banned from iPhones. So this is going to play out rough and tumble in the courts. And in fact, it looks like the Congress might get involved because Apple has the power not marketplace power. They have monopoly power over every user of iPhone. And indirectly, you get gouged. So something that might be 
$5 otherwise is six and a half on an iPhone. In the case of a video game or a music service like Spotify, you have to pay much more money for that same service on an iPhone than you would elsewhere because of the Apple tax. I know last time I talked about this, there were people who posted on Clark Stinks that what I was ignoring was the enormous cost that Apple has in developing its phones and in running its app store. But remember this, you're paying for that phone and you're paying a significant premium in many cases for an iPhone versus an Android. And what you're paying for is the environment, the walled garden that you're getting with the iPhone. So then on top of that, for you to have to pay 30% more for things is really gouging because the developer of a game or a music service or anything else where there's a subscription involved can't survive and absorb that 30% monopoly charge. So they raise the price to you. I believe you should have the same option you have on an Android where if you want the convenience of just being able to click right in the store, you pay the higher price. But if you want to go to their website and pay it there, you avoid the higher price. That's free market and that's free choice. But ultimately, the decision is not made by you and me. It'll be made by governments here and around the world whether Apple can continue to put up that toll gate and charge whatever they decide to charge without any appeal or any rights for you as a consumer or any developer. They only have one choice, and that is either not be on iPhones or pay whatever Apple tells them they have to pay. And that, in my book, is not okay. It's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Whose turn is it? Clark, I'm up, and Caleb in New York has a question. He says, my wife and I live in a beautiful old house that's been converted into two apartments. We've been running the upstairs apartment for two and a half years, and we really love it. We asked our landlords if they would be interested in selling the property, and they said they are open to it. We've had a few of our friends recommend asking if the owners would consider a seller-financed mortgage. We have excellent credit and would not have difficulty being approved for a mortgage from a traditional lender. Is seller financing, uh, getting that mortgage that way, uh, a better idea or even a good idea? And if so, under what conditions? So I love the whole seller finance thing. I've done it as the buyer. I've done it as the seller. And you do take on some risk, Uh, not you as the buyer in this case, but the landlord as the seller takes on risk because if you don't pay, they've got a lot of hassle and they've got to go through potentially a process of foreclosure. And a lot of people just want to know they got their money. So since you're good for the money in terms of your credit and all the rest, the reason to do a seller finance mortgage in your case that you want that from the seller is you have much lower closing costs. And the last two circumstances where I did this, it got me a better price for the property I was selling than I would have gotten otherwise. We both benefited 
by avoiding all the expenses that are involved in closing a traditional mortgage. So I would do this. I would get pre-qualified for a loan with a credit union or through a mortgage broker, know pretty much what you're going to be facing in terms of a payment, what kind of closing costs are involved, and then you go to the, uh, the landlord and say, hey, we'd love to buy it. We're pre-qualified for a mortgage, but we're just curious, would you have any interest in holding the loan yourself and us paying the mortgage to you every month? Because you've already done the homework and they know that you are qualified for a loan, your credit's fine, you're good, they may be more willing to do it. But again, it'll depend on their personal circumstances if they really just want the money or they'd like to have that continued stream of income. Kim? Kurt in California says, I've heard you state that when renting a car, we should take pictures before and after as proof of safe driving. I'd like to know, when is it safe for me to delete those photos? So it's actually just the condition of the vehicle. Um, You could be a terrible driver and never be in a wreck and be a great driver and be in one just based on circumstances. So today you shoot a video instead of taking pictures because with your phones and if you download uh, Google's photo app where you have unlimited storage of video and photos, you take that video of the vehicle thoroughly you do it when you return and generally after 60 days you're going to be good you're going to know in nearly a hundred percent of the circumstances that you're clear of any hassle from the car rental agency once you are two months from when you return the vehicle in most cases you'll know within three to four weeks but just go two months just to make sure you're truly in a safe zone. By the way, if when you're shooting that video before you leave the rental plaza, if you notice a problem, when you get to that place where they check to make sure you're not stealing a car, you know, they have those those um, protective grates and stuff where they check your contract and your ID. If there is anything you've noticed when you're shooting the video, have that person note it on the contract before you leave the plaza that day. Joel? Clark William in Florida says, what are the top three best DIY home security systems for indoor and outdoor with no fees? So any of them are available with no fees, but then you get no monitoring. So a burglar alarm in my book is only really valuable if you do have monitoring as part of it. The three players that have the most market share, there are many others, but the three that have the most market share are the Ring, the Nest, and Simply Safe. The cheapest by far for monitoring is Ring. Ring is, um, works out to be about 10 bucks a month, which is a great deal for traditional professional monitoring, which also should with most homeowners insurers get you a discount on your homeowners insurance that will more than make up that $10 a month fee. So there's a strange thing I should tell you. The reason Ring is so much cheaper for monitoring than the others is Ring is owned by Amazon. And Amazon is putting together a whole suite of household protection and security devices 
with the idea they want to be able to deliver packages into your garage or inside your home and having that all integrated comes as part of the play about why their monitoring is so much cheaper than others which most often will be 15 to 25 dollars a month kim Justin in Florida says, is it okay to have all of your investment slash retirement accounts with only one brokerage company? Yes, because if a brokerage company goes bust, the accounts are generally taken over by another brokerage. The investments themselves remain the investments as they are. The only risk comes if you're holding an extremely large cash position inside a brokerage account and uh, and if it's in a large cash position you're not protected by FDIC you're protected by SIPC which is Securities Investors Protection Corporation which is not a federal agency and doesn't offer the protections you would have otherwise but having a single brokerage account a-okay. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ryan is with us on the Clark Howard Show, and Ryan you get to embark on something that a lot of people have had the great, great joy and privilege of being able to do, which is to study in a foreign country. Tell me about what you're going to be doing. Yes. Uh, hello, Clark. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I have been accepted uh, to grad school for a uh, one year's master program at uh, one of the ancient universities in the United Kingdom. Wow. Which one do you get to go to? Uh, to uh, the University of Edinburgh. Are you ready for gray skies, darkness all the time? I I, I certainly am. In fact, I, I do have a, uh, a friend here in the United States who is from Scotland, and he was briefing me all about that. So, yes, <laughs> I am quite ready. It is Edinburgh is such an incredibly great town. It is wonderful. And you will appreciate summers like you never have in your life if you get to spend one summer through the one-year program because uh, the rest of the year you get punished for it. But it is a, And the travel you'll get to do, if you have any time free while you're studying, the travel you get to do in a day's trip from Edinburgh is really special. You're a lucky guy. How can I, I am, help? I am excited and can't wait to go. Great. How can I help? Because you're going to have a, well, a neat experience. Yes. Yeah, so I, I had uh, just a couple of uh, questions that popped up. First of all, is if you recommended any international bank accounts, checking or savings for undergrad or grad students, 
from the U.S. that are studying abroad in either the U.K. or Europe. And also, if you there were any um, recommendations as far as a reliable yet reasonable uh, relocation service. Uh, reliable yet reasonable what service? Oh, relocation services. Relocation. For traveling overseas and so forth. Oh, oh. Okay, so let's deal with the first part first. Do you have any investments, investment accounts, you know, stocks, mutual yes, funds? I, oh, yes, I have, I have an account through Fidelity. All right, so uh, I love Fidelity, but you may find that you want to have an investment account also at Schwab because okay. they do the best job of anybody I know with people who live as an expat for a period of time. Because okay. Schwab has a uh, no-fee checking account. You need to have an investment account with them with at least some investments in it that has no minimums, no fees, and it ties in with a Schwab debit card that allows you unlimited free ATM withdrawals, no foreign currency transaction fee, and they absorb the ATM fees without limit. So it allows okay. you to draw on your U.S.-based funds at the then-current exchange rate that will have dollar to, to pound and not have to worry about any fees at all. Um, you know, And I like right now with the problems going on in the United Kingdom with Brexit, the, there's a stronger possibility, although guessing on currency moves is always a fool's errand, but there's a decent chance that the British pound will have a rough ride over the next many years. You know, goes currency exchange goes up and down, but having money available in U.S. dollars, I think, is the less risky course for you. Okay. Um, the relocation thing, do you meet, have to move possessions or just yourself? It's really only, you know, personal items. I'm not really moving any large um, furniture or anything of that sort. So, but beyond what you could reasonably afford to ship with an airline? Uh, possibly, yes. That could be an option. See, it's a lot better for you to leave everything in the United States that you possibly can live without because the cost of you for freight moving uh, personal possessions to to the United Kingdom or most anywhere else in the world is so expensive that it's cheaper to buy what you need when you get there than it is for you to try to move it back and forth. So I would avoid that at all costs if it were me. Have a great, great year. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.